People use the phrase racial reconciliation all the time, but what does it mean? And how does the gospel affect the way we think about race? Does the culturally popular view of thinking about people in terms of oppressors and the oppressed really work to bring people together? Or does it actually keep people separated? What does our theology tell us about how God views people and how we ought to treat each other? We're gonna be talking about all of that and more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air. Theology on Air, of course, is um, a byproduct of Theology on Tap, which is a ministry here in Houston for young adults where we come around uh, with some craft beer and talk about interesting ideas, faith and culture, theology, philosophy, the Bible, Christianity, um, all of that kind of thing. And uh, I am Sarah Stone. I'm the outreach director for young adults at MDPC. I am joined by Evan McClanahan, pastor at First Lutheran in Midtown, uh, Houston. And today we have a really special guest I'm excited about. I've been fangirling over her for a while now, and she actually said yes to coming on the podcast. Very exciting. Monique Dusan. Uh, she has a background in social service and children's ministry. She worked as a missionary to South Africa for over four years, serving children and teachers that were impacted by drugs, violence, and trauma. Monique spent 20 years advocating for critical race theory, uh, but through a series of events, which I believe, I think there's a story about somebody crying in a driveway we'll get to, uh, began to see the contradictions of that theory with Christian theology. And so through the work of the Center for Biblical Unity, Monique is striving to promote a vision for racial healing based on the historic Christian worldview. And she has a BA in sociology from Biola University and is currently, I believe, working on your master's in theology from Talbot. Is that right? Not exactly anymore. That's a whole story in and of itself. Okay. But I was at Talbot. Yes. Okay. Well, welcome to the show. I'm just so Hi. glad that you're here. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I don't even remember how I stumbled upon Center for Biblical Unity, but I do remember it was probably right when things were getting really heated this last year or in 2020 um, with all of the protests and riots with Black Lives Matter and other organizations. Um, and uh, something popped up about, is there a Christian version of Black Lives Matter? I think I maybe even Googled it or somebody told me about it and your organization popped up. And so then I started sleuthing and found you and realized we had some mutual friends and um, I've sort of been in love with the work that you're doing since. So. Tell us a little bit about your own, just your story, like how you grew up, how you thought about um, race and racial reconciliation and, um, and maybe, you know, walk us through that to what made you start the Center for Biblical Unity. Well, I grew up in South Los Angeles. I spent the majority of my, my young life there until I was about 15, 16, and then moved to North Hollywood. And that's where I first was truly introduced to Jesus, to church, to, I feel like Christianity as being something that is for me. Um, I grew up with a single mom and three siblings. And gosh, I lived in South Los Angeles during the time of the LA riots, which mm -hmm. um, was focused around like Rodney King. And I want to say her name was... Um, Natasha Harlins, a young mm. black girl who had been killed by a Korean store owner. And so it was a time when I feel like LA was just kind of 
bubbling and rumbling with racial tensions and things like that. And so I would hear it from teachers at school. I would hear it from my mom. I could hear it, um, hear the tension. And I feel like the, the angst from, you know, my friend's parents and things like that. And there was a common narrative just that, that highlighted the differences between black and white. And mm-hmm. I was aware of the fact that I was black. And I think that was the con- the constant conversation um, among many was, you know, we are black and, and we're different and white people have a certain way of living, of being, and we're not that. And so um, I've always been interested in social justice, so to speak. I don't I don't tend to call it social justice, but at that time, that is, I think, the closest thing that I would have attributed it to. I've been interested in social service I, is probably the better word. So I went to Biola and studied sociology with the plan on getting my master's, my MSW, and then, you know, continuing on in the social service field. I did not get my MSW. I did get my, my bachelor's degree in sociology and then went to work in the social service field. And I've done pretty much everything in the realm of social service or many things in the realm of social service. Um, Mm. But I did it upholding this framework that I had been taught just as a child that was just part of the conversation that that was happening on the street. Now in academia, we call it critical race theory, but a lot of the same, the same attitudes and stories and things like that, that are, you know, coming down the pike from academia have always lived on the street for the majority of my life. You know, it was conversations in the kitchen and things like that. And so, um, I just, I lived and worked from that framework as like a program manager and developing internships and programs for teens and things like that. It was to help black and brown young people be able to, you know, come out from under like a marginalization or to be able to burst through a glass ceiling, to be able to truly live beyond what potentially was expected of them or the the route that I was seeing many of them go. When I went to South Africa, it was a lot of the same. I had traveled to South Africa a few times before and mm-hmm. felt the Lord was calling me there. The the area that I worked in was again, it was a color, um, it was colored. So again, like a black or brown community. And the the goal there was to really help liberate in in a certain sense, you know, students from under the the oppression of like gangs and violence, trauma, all that that was happening within the community that I was serving in, so that they could go on and flourish and and do the great things that I believe God had called them to. But it also looked at how do we tear down quote unquote, white structures so mm-hmm. that, you know, they can do what they need to do or what, what do I need to do? What can I do to help get them either around or through some of those systems? And this whole time that you were from Biola through the work that you were doing in South Africa, you were a believer even before you knew the terminology in critical race theory. So maybe just for the people that are listening that haven't heard that term before, maybe give us like a snapshot of what is critical race theory. I mean, we've done a whole other podcast on this that people can go back and listen to with uh, Dr. Neil Shenvey, but maybe just like a your version of what that is, because then later you kind of come out of that. Yeah. So critical race theory in the simplest terms is just a critical look into society based on race, looking at who are 
oppressed and who are oppressors, who are um, flourishing in society, and what are the what are the components that go into their flourishing versus who are those who are not flourishing, who could be considered marginalized or oppressed, and it's a critical look, like I said, based on race. So, what are the things that are happening for or to white people that do not happen for or to black people that create um, any type of disparity, inequality, or things like that. And it came out of critical legal studies, which is a whole nother, you know, topic and show. And if you talked with, with Neil, I'm sure he went into to all of that in the history and yeah. how it flowed down, but yeah. But everything that you just said sounds good to me, right? Like I didn't hear anything that's like, oh, that's not in the Bible. I mean, helping people that have been marginalized, um, recognizing people's worth that, I mean, there are people that have, more opportunities than others. So where's the problem? I mean, I'm well, being kind I, of devil's advocate because I yeah. know where this is going. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that it does sound good. Um, you know, and I think I adopted it because it did sound good because I did want to, you know, help those who had been marginalized. But I think we, we run into some muddy waters when we don't define our terms properly. So what is your okay. definition of marginalization? What is your definition of oppression? What is your definition of love? What is like, these are the, the terms terms that are coming down the pike on the street and from academia that is influencing not only the culture, but the church in telling mm -hmm. us how we need to participate with one another, whether in church or in culture. So now if I am going to be loving, I need to fight for the oppressed. But unfortunately, those who are being op considered oppressed would be people groups like children or LGBTQ+, or things that the Bible specifically does not list as a marginalized people for hmm. reasons that are not listed in scripture as being marginalized. And hmm. so part that's part of the issue with, with critical race theory. I think the other part of the issue is that it takes our identity and completely swaps it or um, exchanges it. When I come into to Christianity, when I am adopted into the family of God, I am no longer my ethnicity first. I am a child of God first. That makes us brothers and sisters. Yes. In critical race theory, we are continually identified by our ethnic group. And I am first identified and known by my ethnicity or by my skin color and everything flows from that point. And so that that's part of like part of my issues. I think I could I could keep going, but you know, there's there's a lot I think that people don't understand in adopting this framework and how it doesn't necessarily go alongside of Christianity and how we as Christians, when we aren't defining our terms properly, we can adopt something that is not in line with Christianity. Yeah. I heard you in an interview say something like you just did about identity. And you said something like, as a Christian, my identity has changed or, or I identify first now as a child of God. Whereas with the oppressor oppressed uh, dynamic, there's never a change. That mm -hmm. identity always stays the same. And so then that system is always in place. There's, there's not a getting out of it. It's just a constant thing. I don't know if you wanted to say anything more about that, that there's, there's no sort of movement toward something else because your identity will always be either the oppressor or the oppressed, right? Yeah. Your, your identity is fixed. Your identity, because your skin doesn't change. 
So my skin color isn't going to change. Now, when we look at things like the tenet of convergence, uh, it's not interest convergence, that says that racism or things that um, oppress people of color will only be lifted, shifted, or changed when it is to the benefit of the white person. Again, Mm -hmm. I am Mm -hmm. stuck here and you are stuck where you are. And no matter how hard you work until all the white people decide that they are going to do something different for my benefit or until there there becomes a place in our history where our interests converge Mm -hmm. and we now recognize, hey, this is to the good of both of us to move away from this, then these things will never cease. You are where you are. I am where I am. But that isn't true of, of... Christianity isn't true of the scriptures. And so when, when we say that, you know, well, our ethnicity is fixed and thus our place is fixed, how do you move beyond that? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'm oh, sorry, you can speak anytime. I just have so many questions. I'm so excited. So you're, you're in South Africa, you're helping these groups of um, like children and people that are really affected by trauma and drug use and you're in the CRT world, walk us through how you came from that to, I'm going to start this whole thing called Center for Biblical Unity, and I'm going to teach against CRT and churches. How did that happen? Um, Through a lot of random events that I feel like were all orchestrated by God, but I just couldn't see it. Um, yeah. Gosh, my ministry partner, Krista, she's a theologian, and um, she has two master's degrees from Talbot in theology. and just Just the two? Just the two. I'm joking. You know, right? And she actively, um, she works, her full-time job is as a theologian. And so um, we had several conversations where she challenged a lot of what I believed. And I also challenged a lot of what she believed. You know, Mm -hmm. we came from similar backgrounds. Like we were both raised by single parents, but we had very different backgrounds on the same side. You know, I grew up in South LA for the majority of my my young life. And she grew up in a suburb and, you know, what was missing in, in the understanding of history and things like that. And so she began to, to really press. And, and like I said, I pressed her. And then one day I went to work and my intern came in and she was just crying, crying, crying. And it was, it was such a mess. And when we got down to the bottom of it, she told us the stories that were happening at her, um, at her university, the issues between like black and brown students and white students and how many black students were angry and were, and this is a Christian university, you know, they were calling white students out of their name or referring to them as fragile or telling them like in class that you can't speak, you know, because you're white. And then calling for the resignation of certain individuals in their school and things like that, to which some of those things manifested. And I have had, I've since had conversation with some people at the school in leadership to find out Mm -hmm. that, you know, these things were verified and true, Yeah, but that really alerted me to like, you know what, maybe there, maybe there's a problem. I just started to question and I started to pray and ask God like, Hey, what, what, what's going on? Like, is there a problem? And the more I got into conversations with the Lord and Krista and with my intern and just began to like kind of ask other questions. I feel like the Lord was like, you know, this isn't, this isn't the way this will never build unity. And Mm -hmm. from there, 
I think my paradigm began to shift and it was actually not even a shifting, but a complete tearing down because what people don't understand is that when you uphold, and I know many people don't see critical race theory as a worldview, they see it as a framework. I see it as a worldview. I think it answers many worldview questions, but when you uphold this framework, um, it impacts the way you do, you know, many, many things. And so for me, it was that not only did I have to, you know, shift my thinking in, in, you know, a few ways, but there were major blocks that needed to come down for me that needed to be rebuilt. And, you know, CFBU basically started from there because I, Krista and I together, my ministry partner, we spoke at the Women in Apologetics Conference Mm -hmm. and we spoke on critical race theory And I had many people coming up to us afterwards and saying, you know, thank you for speaking on this. My husband was fired or my husband didn't get the promotion or this is happening, you know, in my child's school. I went up to Northern California and spent time with a friend. And while I was there, her son, who, gosh, he had to be like eight or nine at the time, came home and said, you know, my friends at school called me a dumb white boy because I'm white. Like they were picking on him simply because he was white. And from there, I just was like, you know, there it is. Like, I think it's time for, for people to use their voice to be able to speak into some of the, these things. Like, I, if, I, if I truly believe that we're family, that, you know, and again, like this is as I've gone through some of this, but, you know, as I, if I believe that we truly are family, then I would use my voice to speak up for my brothers and sisters, despite their skin mm-hmm. color, the same yeah. way that I would want my brothers and sisters to speak up for Do me, for despite you. my, yeah. And so I remember driving down, um, the street right in front of our house and feeling like the center for biblical unity, just like so strongly in my heart. And I was like, I have no idea what this is, but we do need a biblical approach to unity and critical race theory is not a biblical approach to unity, Mm-mm. nor is this idea of racial reconciliation in, in my, you know, personal opinion. Oh, we'll go there soon, but go ahead. Yeah. If someone were to um, sort of want to know what really is wrong with critical race theory sort of in a nutshell. I mean, if I were to say, well, it, it looks at, it, it compresses the human experience and human history into two categories, you know, um, oppressed and oppressor. And of course that's Marxist language and a Marxist framework. So you hear a lot about cultural Marxism and neo-Marxism and all that sort of thing. But would it be safe to say that that, that would be a, a, a very nutshell kind of way to say right off the bat, like that's not a biblical way of understanding. Of course, there's oppression. Of course, there are people who oppress, mm-hmm. but that's not the totality, um, you know, of, of the human experience that you're in one of those two camps. I mean, whereas, you know, Marx seemed to think that was the entire history of man. And so if he could just get rid of those two categories and the entire history of man could be or the future of man, you know, could be different. Is that a good place to start or or not? I would, I always tend to to start with questions, you know, so why do you believe this? Um, Yes, but getting to your point is, is pivotal because for the Christian, if we're only in two, two categories, what do you do with the scripture that says, but God has torn down the dividing wall? Mm -hmm. One, two, if we're only in two categories, does that mean that I am just by virtue of my skin in one of these two categories? Does that like it? 
even if I haven't participated, like if I was white and I'm now, now I'm automatically in this position of being the oppressor, does that mean that any other racial group or ethnic group can't be an oppressor? What do you do with Africans? What do you do with the continent of Africa where we see oppression from African, Black African to Black African? What do we do with the, the conversation of, you know, Africans who enslaved other Africans and then sold other Africans? You know what I mean? Like there's, there is so much that's left out of this critical race theory narrative that, um, that shapes it to be a conversation I feel like that many critical race theorists want to have, but it, it, it leaves out a lot of conversation personally. That's kind of my take on it. And another change, and this is one of your questions. So yeah, if I could steal to, one of my questions, yeah, do that. Yeah, exactly. I always do that. Um, like, it's the question of racism and what racism is, right? Yeah. So um, I, I remember when I was in seminary, I had a spiritual advisor who was an African-American and we were talking about racism and things of that nature. And he said, well, racism is, is power plus prejudice plus privilege, I think. Um, there's three Ps. And, and it's very Baptist. Yeah. So, of course, I grew up with a very basic understanding that, you know, racism was you know, one one group of people, one race thinking they're better than another, really for no good reason. Um, but we're at a point now where essentially only whites can be racist. And that that's because it has to tie into the suppressed oppressor category. And so you get lumped in kind of a rigged game is what I what I call this. Uh, I have no hope of, of winning, if you will. I have no hope of being anything but the bad guy in this in this situation as a white guy. Um, but what what do we do with that? Where did that definition come from? And is that a biblical understanding of what racism is? Because none of us here are denying that racism is real and it doesn't. Yeah. Exist. Oh my goodness. I know who it, who it came from and it's not Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw um, coined intersectionality and it's not Robin DiAngelo. Um, Peg but McIntosh? The, I, Yes, Peggy McIntosh, thank you. Um, the The idea of prejudice plus power, prejudice plus privilege plus power, makes racism something that is very specific and very unique and only a certain group of people can participate in it. It takes racism from being individual to being something that is systemic or systematic mm. and those with power can only participate in it. Mm -hmm. So I have no, no opportunity to participate in it if I am not part of the power structure, the systemic power structure of America. To me, that is not biblical because what do you do when I call you out your name because of the, the color of your skin? Mm -hmm. Am I not participating in racism? To me, the a better way to look at it is to look at things that are biblically in like biblical biblical sins. So when we look at the biblical sin, one racism isn't in the Bible. Um, there's no passage that says don't be a racist. I was quite disheartened when I learned that, but Aww. there isn't, you know, so, but it, we are warned against participating in partiality. Mm -hmm. We are warned against hatred in our hearts. We are mm -hmm. warned against slander. Um, there are, you know, like there are many verses I think that we can put together to build a framework and says, yes, when we participate in this way, the possibility of this being ethnic partiality, aka a racism, it, it, there's a comparable sin there. 
Yeah. Um, but when we decide to, or when we participate in a way that says racism is this big macro structural thing, then it eliminates some people. And it says, well, you know, you can't do this, but what do I do with, for example, a restaurant that's owned by a black family and maybe it's a chain. And now we know that, or let's say it's owned by a, a black family, it's a chain and they participate with white people in a way that is race-based. So white people get less service. They get less food, you know, whatever. They're treated poorly. Is that not even on a micro level, still a systemic issue that is race-based? The, the fact that we're saying black people can't participate in something doesn't really go with scripture, one, because everybody can participate in any sin, but two, yeah. I don't, I don't even- opportunity. Sin is an equal opportunity, you know, but one, two, I don't even think that culturally it, it upholds all of the weight that people give it credit for hmm. because that it's it interesting. Can, go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying that's interesting. I'd never really thought about the power piece, eliminating people from, I mean, it kind of lets some people off the hook white or black or whatever. If you don't have power, then you can't be racist. And I think we all know that you could be just Joe Schmo with no money, no power, no, you know, high class of any kind any skin color and be a jerk about race. Your skin color gives you power according to critical race theory. So, um, is it, it's called, uh, whiteness as whiteness is property. Hmm. And so if whiteness is property, you have something that I don't have. And that automatically gives you a leg up. Wouldn't there be context and many thousands, millions of contexts in which one you know, a person of color could have more power than a person not. I mean, um, Beyonce has more power than I do. Yeah. Or even, you know, just in a, well, and another, another kind of biblical question I, I would have is, you know, when, when I read the Bible, I tend to think that we are responsible for what we have done. Um, and this looks at things, not in that light. It's basically mm. like you, you know, you are responsible for the sins of your ancestors for sure. But you're even responsible for the sins of your contemporaries because of the color of your skin. Hmm. Um, whereas biblical justice seems to suggest, you know, you know, you have witnesses, you have testimony. Um, really, the, the idea of being innocent until proven guilty is is a biblical concept, I would say. Hmm. Whereas critical race theory seems to say you're guilty until proven innocent. In fact, you can't prove your innocence because that would be white fragility. That would be. Which we'll get to for sure. Yes. I mean, and when we, when we look at, and sorry, I am, I was trying to look up, um, this whole, the whole whiteness is property. I have, um, a book that I used to really love. It is Delgado and Stefanich. I don't know how to say his last name, but, um, (laughs) their critical race theory introduction where they talk about whiteness as property. Um, but yes, like you can't, you can't, then, you know, say, well, I'm not racist because right. that's part of the problem. According to Kendi, you're either anti-racist or you're racist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, but actually yes, you're, you're by nature racist. If I'm white, even if I'm an anti-racist, I have to be a racist first. I have to claim that I'm a racist first. That's what I've understood. If I'm white, more, I'm naturally a racist, but I can also now try to be anti-racist. That's more of D'Angelo's method. It comes under Kendi too, because you are always participating as racist or anti-racist. Okay. 
So let's talk a little bit about the sort of reigning systems of thought. I mean, Black Lives Matter is huge, especially after George Floyd. I think they just got so much more notoriety. They were already a, a pretty big organization. And um, and the, what is it, Movement for Black Lives is another big one. How, how do you think they're addressing this issue? Where do you think they fall short? Um, and then the Center for Biblical Unity, how does that look different? Um, Black Lives Matter, I mean, their their founders are Marxists. They're trained Marxists. They, you know, they're quite open about it. They say yeah. it in interviews and things like that. They also participate in things like African spiritualism, at least Patrice Cullors does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she's very open about when you say the name, you're actually calling on spirits yep. and, you know, like all of those things. And so that's huge. One of the huge differences, but I would, I would say that because they are Marxists, their call for unity isn't necessarily true unity. It's, it's a call to overturn systems. You get to unify around something that is sinful. I get to, to riot or, um, you know, loot and do all of these destructive things in the, in the name of quote unquote justice, so to speak. Um, Mm -hmm. They are also, you know, very closely connected with the black trans movement and in looking at getting rid of the nuclear family structure, how do we, you know, as Christians biblically support that when we see back in Genesis, the foundation of the family, this is something that has been since the beginning we can't get away from, you know, the foundation of the family or, um, you know, what the family is intended to look like, male and female, just because we want to stand against racism. You know, I can't let one go to be able to lift up the other. As Christians, we, we have a foundation where we can actually support both. So I can say that the nuclear family is important and racism is also important. We need to talk about both. The Center for Biblical Unity, I think, is distinct and unique in the fact that we are a place where we are family first. You know, mm. that is that's part of our our just our ethos is that, you know, if you profess the name of Christ, if you are a child of God, we are brothers and sisters. And that's according to Ephesians. I don't I don't have to wait for you to do some work. You know, mm-hmm. one of the, the things that um, Black liberation theology and like the founder of Black liberation theology, James Cone, he mentions is that there's a lot of work that white people need to do. And you cannot be fully absolved of your sins of whiteness and racism until everyone agrees that you are now absolved. So I can say mm-hmm. you're absolved. But if my sister or my brother doesn't, you know, agree that you're absolved, are you really absolved? You're not. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And so, but that's not true of Christianity. Of Christianity, yeah. we look at in Second Corinthians and it says that old man is gone. We need to now mm-hmm. not, not treat each other the way that we used to based on their old sin. As soon as they come into the kingdom, as soon as they become our brothers and sisters, we enter into a new relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And so now we have a different relationship. And that is the the one of the, I feel like, distinctive marks about CFBU, the Center for Biblical Unity, is because I I see you first as my brother and my sister. I couldn't do that before when I lived in this Mm -hmm. critical race theory worldview. There was always some kind of like underlying kind of motive. Why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? I don't really trust her. Like she cool, but you know, I don't really trust him and he's nice, but you know, so there's always a question. And with this, I don't have to question. I know that if you say that you are a child of God, then we are brothers and sisters. Now you can prove me wrong. 
Yeah. You know, you, <laughs> it's something you, to be lost, not gained. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's okay too. Yeah. But again, we even have a framework for that. So how do we participate in forgiveness? Hmm. How do we walk a road with one another? How do we bear the burden of, of one another and with one another? These are the things that Paul talks about in Ephesians. We have been given a unity in John 17. Christ says, I've given them what they need for unity. Hmm. And so yeah. we have a different framework. The Center for Biblical Unity isn't about trying to shame anyone. I don't care what your skin color is. You, um, It's not about trying to shame anyone at all. Don't come on my page and get crazy, you know, <laughs> but, but it's not about that. It's about living out a biblical version of you, like the biblical version of unity and, and to live that out. Racial reconciliation. I know we, I, I hit on this earlier. Yeah, this that was idea, my next question. Yeah. This idea of racial reconciliation. Um, Virgil Walker from Just Thinking Podcast told me this almost a year ago I, now. I love that podcast. Sorry. I know that he is my uncle. He's he not, you know, you know, in, in spiritual. Um, you know, <laughs> but see, a lot of uncles and aunties. Right. That, but that's a whole thing. Yeah. It's like we truly are family. Um, but he said races don't reconcile, hearts do. And so mm. when you look at the, the verse that's normally put forth for racial reconciliation, it is set in Corinthians five, it's five. Like uh, if you take a big chunk, maybe 10 to 20 and it yeah. puts forth this idea that, you know, we've been given the ministry of, re- of reconciliation. We have been mm-hmm. given the ministry of reconciliation. That is a capital T truth. The reconciliation that Paul is referring to is reconciling sinful hearts to a holy God. Mm. Yeah. That is the reconciliation. And I need to go and tell everyone that there has been a way made for you to be, to have a right relationship with God that was not available before. We now have something that we did not have. Let's tell everyone, let's get out there and, and do that, that work, so to speak. Yeah. But that does I've, not mean that my heart is, is now, or that my skin, I am now reconciled to you because of like skin color. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So no, it I makes think so much sense. When we're heard Vodi Bakum uh, says something like, I mean, he's preached a lot about this kind of idea and he talks about race or uh, reconciliation has already happened. It happened yes. as soon as Christ finished work on the cross yes. was there. So, um, but there's still, I know when we say there's work to be done, that terminology is in sort of both camps, but if there's still racism still exists, mm-hmm. Right. Um, so then what do we do about that? I mean, if everybody, let's just say we're talking about Christians and other Christians, and you said we're all family. And so reconciliation is heart to heart, not skin color to skin color. But let's say you have a Christian who acts in racist ways. What's the kind of answer to that? What's the solution to that? Or what's the movement? I would have a conversation with that person. So if we're in the same, let's say we're in the same church. And I know that Jim over here doesn't, Jim is my brother. He doesn't like white people. If I know that Jim talks bad about white people, um, won't sell to white people, like just has this whole little racist thing going. I need to, Jim, what's going on with you? Like, this is not biblical. How -hmm. are you calling yourself a Christian and not participating according to the ways that have been set forward for us in scripture? Now, yeah. if now I hope that pulling him to the side, his heart would change and he'd be like, yeah, you know what? I understand. That's right. Da, da, da. But if he keeps going, I need to bring it to leadership. Yeah. There needs to be bigger conversations. He might need to come into church discipline. We don't want to talk about church discipline in the church. What yeah. if Jim isn't really a believer? 
If Jim yeah. is acting in a certain set of ways and refusing to change, on some level, Jim might not be, you know, a, a real <laughs> I do know. And that's hard. That's a hard word. And no one wants to really sit Jim down and be like, I was the one who had to tell Jim he wasn't a believer. He was acting outside of the fellowship. But so would you rather keep something that is causing a, a fracture in the body? So because Jim tithe, you know, because you yeah. don't want to in Jim, you know what I mean? Like at some point as Christians, we have got to stand up and say, you know what? You're participating in partiality and I can't get down with that. Yeah. You are participating in partiality. And it's not that I can't get down with it. It's that Jesus won't get down with it because when I look in the law, this is the way that we're supposed to participate with one another. Hmm. We need, we need to get back to the old Testament a little bit, even though I know we don't, that's not the, that's not what saves us. That's not how we get our salvation. And when, when it wasn't the rich young ruler, maybe it was the rich young ruler came to Jesus and was like, what must I do to be saved? He said, love your neighbor Hmm. as yourself. That is law. Love is law. Justice is law. And if we want to know how to do this and how to do it well and what God's standards are and what his commands are, we need to look in the law. Okay, so that answers that answers kind of the question. No, you're fine. And I'm just trying to squeeze a lot into our hour. That's all. That answers kind of the question of an individual who's acting in racist ways. What about, I mean, what we're hearing from the media and just culture at large is that the really big problem is systemic racism, right? Structures of racism in fill in the blank. Do you think that's a legitimate concern? And then what do we do about that? Could be, depends on how you define your terms. Yeah. So what do you do with marriage? I am not married. Anyone who is married makes a lot more money than I do if both spouses are working. What do you, that's, that is, marriage is a system. Marriage Hmm. works within society and functions within society as a system. What do we do with that? We have to be careful as to how we use our terms. Now, if I go out and I notice that in, you know, this precinct here, there, there is higher levels of reports of racism, or um, I know of a judge that's racist or, you know, something that is truly able to create a system and have impact on people's lives, then yes, we should, in my personal opinion, use our voice, our vote and our dollar to speak into that because we Mm -hmm. care for the image bearer, you know? So Hmm. it's kind of like if there was a system um, that killed, that killed Muslims, so we, we now have set up a system within the United States that kills Muslims. I'm going to speak out against that, not because they are, you know, we share the same religion, but because they are image bearers and murder goes directly against mm-hmm. what the Christian worldview says we do. Yeah. So yes, I can use my voice, my vote and my dollar to be able to say, no, I'm not going to participate in this. Or this judge needs to be, you know, outed because he participates in a way that is partial toward a certain group of people. I'm not saying don't um, use your your voice in those things. What I am saying is that we have to clearly define our terms because everything isn't systemic. If you have one precinct that may have some racist cops in it, that does not mean that the entire um, judicial system across America needs to be, or policing system across America needs to be defunded. Yeah. Um, I want to say two things. The first is that just because, say, CRT is wrong, it doesn't mean that I'm not a racist, right? So I think right. one yeah. of the things that...
we have to be careful with not not y'all but i don't know we me i don't know people in general is like we um we can get on our high horse and be like yeah oh, crt is the worst thing ever it's so we're fine everything's fine so like we're fine so it's like no we still need to be introspective and be like but that's a very wrong system and also i may i may have wrong beliefs i if the goal of CRT is to like break things down, some people have said it's like battery acid. I think that's right. It's to, to kind of break things down so that we can rebuild. You know, we can have equity. You can't have equity though until you break a few things. Um, it's working well. I think that race relations are going to be really are are, are going to struggle really mightily um, since last summer, um, and it's going to do a lot of damage in the church. Um, but um, I forgot all my questions. I know I was, I was, I was going to get there. Um, but oh, oh, this is my question. So let's say we all agree that the path to unity is biblical Christianity. Um, so many great passages for that. But isn't Christianity really the problem? I mean, wouldn't CRT regard Christianity as the problem, not a solution? I mean, because I mean, like for example, some of the the riots and things like that last year, monuments started to get pulled down. Church monuments started to get pulled down. I mean, isn't Christianity guilty of white supremacy, imperialism, colonialism, slavery, all those sorts of things. Do you worry that we're going to lose our moral authority before we can have time? I mean, it's all in God's hands, but, you know, sort of present the message that says, look, this is something we need to, CRT is something we need to walk away from. We have a better way. I think that, yes, the church has participated in many like racial atrocities. The black church was formed because of segregation and things like that. Um, and abolitionists were Christians, you know, who, who went to fight against slavery. There have been, you know, white churches and white Christians who fought alongside Martin Luther King to, and, you know, in the civil rights movement there, again, when we break it up and, and say, well, this whole thing is bad, you know, then we never look at the parts of it that are good, the parts of it that do work and have worked. Do I think that the church is going to lose her moral authority? I, in the, in the eyes I, of the public, right? Like in the, in the, in the sense that the vast majority of people 25 and under will just refuse to look at the, you know, the Bible is having anything meaningful. I mean, again, it's in God's hands, but that, that's my concern is that CRT is going to like poison the well so deep, mm. you know, because Christianity is white supremacy. Christianity is all these things. You know? Well, there is the, and you guys can Google this or, you know, find out about it later, but um, it, something called Christian privilege and looking at Christians as being the oppressors. And so instead of white privilege, our our faith would be considered an oppressive faith because in some ways it can be seen as being exclusive and not completely inclusive. And, but again, you have to define your terms. So what does it mean by being inclusive and exclusive? Um, but yes, I think that, that Christianity is, is being seen and it will continue to be seen as a religion that is oppressive. I think that um, Christians themselves will start to be seen as people who are oppressive based on a worldview that we hold because it is in conflict with the current worldview that's being presented. Now, along the lines of young people losing, losing regard and um, 
you know, confidence in Christianity as a worldview. I think that's that's happening, but I think that that is happening in the church as well, unfortunately, because we have such a, a small percentage of people in the church who actually understand what Christianity is, who actually have a biblical worldview. I think that there's a lot that can be done though to make inroads into culture and into church. And it's going to take a boldness though to do it. Yeah, I um so we're having a few technical difficulties over here, but that's good for me because it means my mic is the one that we have to use and I have all the questions. So um a <laughs> uh, couple I want to do just kind of a couple maybe rapid fire, like what are your quick thoughts on this? For instance, the idea of reparations, paying for the past sins of of my ancestors and various other people's ancestors, what are your thoughts on that? I'm not a fan. I mean, what okay. do you do? That what was do you a do quick. With, <laughs> well, what do you do with blacks who own blacks? Yeah. So am I now needing to pay reparations? Because if I got to pay reparations, I'm not for it. I don't want to. <laughs> don't take uh, my money. You know what I yeah. mean? And is that not theft? How? Mm. I mean, at some point, we are now going to punish you and steal from you for something that you didn't do. And when we look biblically into those things, that isn't the precedent that's set forward by scripture. Yeah. I love the way you come back to scripture, man. So refreshing. Okay. This one is a little bit personal for me because, uh, I had something happen several months ago where I came under a lot of fire, um, for some things I said on social media. And a lot of what was thrown at me was that I was, I almost took the post down because I was like, Oh, I don't want to offend anybody. And then people said, don't take it down. That's your white fragility. Now you have to like stand and like kind of take the beating that you're getting. And I heard all of these things. I heard like, you need to shut up and listen just shut up and listen. And then other people said, your silence is violence. In fact, I had someone unfriend me because I didn't say anything the day of the Capitol, uh, um, the people storming the Capitol. Um, and so if I say something, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. And this white fragility thing kept getting thrown at me. So I've, I've essentially read uh, Robin D'Angelo's book. I'm curious what you think about her thoughts, that idea of white fragility. And then what are those of us that have white skin and want desperately to do good in the world. Do you have any advice for us? Because um, it feels like there's just nothing to be said or done that is received as kindness or love. Yeah, damned if you do, damned if you don't is a good way to put it. Because what are you supposed to do? I'm not Google, so don't ask me your questions. Yet your silence is violence toward me. Yet don't speak because you don't understand because you haven't done the research. So what should you do? Like you're supposed to tell me, Monique. And but I'm not Google. You know what I mean? Like I don't have all your answers. But see, this is and that's yeah. my exact point. If you don't get in a conversation with the Lord and you don't have a true relationship with Him, you're gonna be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave because you're not anchored in scripture. Scripture says that we don't rush to judgment. We don't run with the mob. There's a lot of things that scripture says. I am slow to speak. So if I need to, to make a statement or to say something, I need to get in, in a conversation with the Lord first about what should I say? Mm. I have, I've also mm. been on that, on that side of the fence though, where, you know, I waited before I said something and 
even though I waited, everybody came for me. I've also been on the side where I've said something immediately. People didn't like what I said because I was calling them to wait and, you know, to make sure that we heard all the truth or all the evidence, sorry. And, you know, people were like, why do we have to wait? Well, because we're Christian. Everybody on my page who just responded to this conversation is a Christian. Mm -hmm. So we, there are things that we don't do. Now, despite the color of your skin, you don't take your cues from the culture. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not taking your cues from the culture, they can tell you that your silence is violence. That's cool. That's your worldview. You Mm -hmm. can tell me that I need to speak now and speak loud. That's cool. That's your worldview. I take my cues from God. Mm. I like it. Dang. Okay. Another quick question for you is have I, I mean, and you just kind of alluded to this, but have you come under fire for being a black woman that is saying some things that a lot of the, um, at least American black culture thinks is uh, like, are you seen as a traitor or betraying your own yes. ethnicity? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they come on Twitter every once in a while, I'll put something out there and then it's like, well, that's because, you know, you're using your voice for the white person or, mm. um, I remember early on people telling me like I had been brainwashed by white people and, you know, mm. in, and you, this is what God has me doing. And I can't, I can't answer to you, you know? Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean it's not painful. That doesn't mean that I'm yeah. sad, that I don't get lonely or, you know, hurt and, and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I have to stand for what God has asked me to stand for. And that isn't to be like some martyr or, you know, victim mentality or like, oh, look at me, I'm noble and a hero. That just means I truly want to live out the biblical worldview and the biblical framework. And I believe that this is what God has asked me to do in this season. What God is going to ask us to do, depending on who we are, is not going to be easy. Yeah. And so this is my lane. This is what he's told me to do for this season. I love it. Okay. Last rapid fire question. And then did we get the thing fixed so you can actually ask more questions? I think so. Okay. Um, Do you think that racism or any of the issues around between having to do with race that we experience, do you think they actually will ever end on this side of heaven? Do you think no. that that's something that could happen? No, no, I just mm-hmm. don't. I don't think that we're ever going to get rid of racism because there will always be that one person in the family that's going to mess something up. You're the reason why we can't have nothing nice. You know what I mean? Like th- th- there's always going to be one and it's like, we can work, but, and this is K- Kendi's model that everyone needs to be mm-hmm. doing this work all the time for the rest of forever so yeah. that we can get to a place of not having racism or any other, you know, transphobia, like all of these things that he puts out as a model and as a, a problem. But the issue is an issue of the heart and the heart Mm -hmm. is deceitfully wicked. I -hmm. can do things in an instant and be like, man, I can't believe I said that, thought that, did that, wrote that, you know, whatever. That is an issue of the human heart. That's an issue that we have to struggle with and struggle through and understand that as broken as I am, so are you, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And so if that's the case, we should be submitting these things to prayer and to scripture and learning how to walk out the way that has been set before us, not, not enveloping ourselves or trying to perform tasks that have been created by man. See, the thing with critical race theory is that this is a framework made by man that highlights the problem. And it also gives me the solution. It completely takes away God. 
Hmm, there's, there's, there's no, where, where do I find God in that? Who, who adjudicates? Where is the higher power hmm. that mm-hmm. I can, I can say that it's the plumb line that sits outside of the muck and mire that I'm in. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things CRT seems to do as well is it, it gives a lot of power to, to whites, to the oppressor, right? Because it kind of seems to indicate that the reason that some are oppressed is because of the oppressor. Um, which, and what, what I mean by that is that, let me just name drop. Let me just book drop. Okay. Malcolm X's autobiography. Okay, I'm not an expert. I've read it, but one of the things I found interesting in that now, granted, he wrote this while he was, you know, supporting the nation of Islam, which I think is basically a cult and, you know, yeah. and he repented of that and left it and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that he was about was building up the black community kind of saying, oh, you're going to segregate. Okay. We'll we'll build up our community. We'll be on our own and we will build up this community. It was very positive in that sense. And he talked a lot about white devils and all that, which has to deal with Nation of Islam theory, you know, um, the theology. supporting myth and theology and all that. But um, so I, I understand why people would think it would be crazy to, to think of Malcolm X in any positive sense. But he was very positive in terms of building up the black community. Like you can do this. We can have black businesses. We can support one another. Um, we can take what we've been given and we can do better. So in, in his message to the black community was very positive. Whereas CRT is like, oh, we we have no, we have no chance. You know, we're oppressed, hmm. they have all the power. We we can't do it until we bring them down. You know, and that that seems to be it seems to be a kind of a hopeless message too. Because what's the end goal? When do you know that you've accomplished this equity, equality, whatever you want to call it? Um, I don't know if you've read Malcolm X or if you have any strong feelings about that or if I read that correctly, but I'd be curious to know your thoughts. I have not read Malcolm X, um, but what my thoughts are on it is that you are hitting, you know, some pretty strong chords that I do agree with. I think that before the welfare state, Blacks did extremely well. I think that we can, we can harken back to Black Wall Street, which I go to, like, I go to that, that, topic often in looking at black wealth and how blacks were doing, you know, in the like early thirties and mid thirties, or um, even the, the black movement right after slavery and our, and how entrepreneurial we were. Many slaves were given passage to work while they were slaves. And then they went and bought their freedom from their slave owners while yet they were still slaves. Like there was a, a ethic among black Americans to me that that just said, we're gonna do this, we are going to do it well. We are a people that um, that are not gonna go down, you know, without a kick and a fight. And now what I see today is, you know, we, you know, kind of just laid down and, and are the victims of all white people. I know many people would disagree with me on that, but when I'm willing to blame whiteness on the the condition of everything. I just saw a video where there were um, heavy set black women and they were blaming their obesity on whiteness. And I was like, you know, how do we, how did we get from there to from blaming everyone 
and away from self-responsibility, what, what happened in culture, what happened to, you know, the black family structure. And now where we're to now where we're seeing like many black single homes or black abortion rates, you know, I think that there's, there's many ways where I do agree. I feel like there has been a change in the conversation from, a responsible culture, a responsible, you know, ethnic group in, you know, in the sense of like, we are going to continue to move forward despite Jim Crow, despite uh, marginalization, redlining, you know, all of these kind of things to, uh, we have to tear down all of the American structures in order for us to have any kind of chance. And, you know, statistically, it's not true. Statistically, there's there's no statistics that put forth the idea that Black, well, not Black wealth, but Black um, governmental power or Black political power also equals um, a, a close in the wealth gap or um, a bettering in, the, in society in terms of Black people. Those things don't correlate. Interesting. I can't stop thinking about the fact that I can now blame my curves instead of eating too much and drinking too much. It's on a whole people group. I'm, I'm for that. I think yeah, girl, that. that's what I said. No. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. That sounds right. Not taking personal responsibility is my jam. Okay. We only have a couple of minutes left and I want to talk a little bit about, um, we've gotten sort of the ethos of center for biblical unity, but I want to get into the kind of nuts and bolts of what, what you guys are doing. And if people really want to get on board to either help you out or use your resources, I know that you are just about to come out with some curriculum that uh, people can use in what, like Sunday school classes or small groups. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how people can get on board. So we do, goodness gracious, what don't we do? We do book groups, we do trainings, we fly, we are, you know, definitely not banned or, you know, constricted, we will go to where you are and train pastoral teams, train churches on, you know, what is critical theory, critical race theory? Why is it a, a danger in evangelicalism or in the church? And you know, train communities on how to have productive conversations on race, justice, and unity from a very biblical perspective. And why is the cultural view or the cultural narrative and conversation about race, justice, and unity not in line with scripture? So that's one of the main things that we do. Every Thursday at six, I do a family meeting where I update people on what's happening here at the ministry. And then I like take questions or, you know, hear kind Kind of like kind of like have a online back and forth with people like a town we hall are, kind of. a town hall yeah that's yeah. a good word for it thanks um we also are going to launch um a race and justice class soon it'll be two separate classes one on race and one on justice from a, a biblical view and then we are releasing curriculum it is actually available for pre-order right now mm -hmm. it is called reconciled a biblical vision for um, racial unity and so it is looking at how do we do unity in the church and how do we do it well? How do we have these hard conversations? What's the biblical precedent for even having these hard conversations? What's the biblical precedent for our unity? And do we need to do the work of racial reconciliation? It's a six week study that people can do um, in small or large groups. It actually can be done individually. It's a, um, a downloadable book component or something, a book you can order on demand. And it also comes with um, video components as well. Okay. So each lesson will have a video. 
That's a lot. And then you have, you're doing podcasts, you and you, what is your friend's name again? Krista Bontrager. She's like, Krista. Yes. Krista Bontrager. She is also known online as Theology Mom. I would suggest anyone who wants to know about theology, hermeneutics, um, goodness, a biblical worldview, how to teach that to your children and things like that. Go and follow Theology Mom on Facebook because like I said, she's a theologian and she really breaks that down well. You can follow the Center for Biblical Unity on Facebook or on Instagram. It is Center for Biblical Unity or connect with us on our website at centerforbiblicalunity.com. Yeah. Okay, I have to know, is Krista the one that you made cry in the driveway? That's so sad. I heard you I heard you say something in an interview about getting into a conversation before you had kind of pivoted your views. And maybe you even called someone the R word racist. And then they <laughs> cried and you were like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. I, it- Yes, it was her. We were in the driveway and we were having, we had had a hard conversation or an argument um, on our way home about critical race theory. And I was just like, here we go with the fragility, you know? And I mean, basically it was that she was racist. And according to the framework, it's a circular framework. So anything that you do, you are just now proving what I said. So I call you a racist, self-fulfilling prophecy. That's exactly it. And so she was fulfilling all the prophecies. And I think eventually like in her frustration and anger, the same way I would have called me a racist, even though I can now admit that I was, you know, hugely racist. um, I'm going to get in my feelings and I'm going to probably check you. And Mm -hmm. she cried. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, (laughs) can't she see it? Can't she see it? But you know, that was, that was a moment I'm not too proud of, but that is, it was. But you know, I loved hearing you talk about it because, um, well, we've all had moments like that. It may not have been around race, but something where we said something and then it was what began a new thought process. And I'm so glad in some ways that that happened because now you're doing such amazing work and I'm so thankful for what you're doing. Um, Thank you. But sorry, we aired your dirty laundry right at the end of the podcast. So. No, it's okay. I you can, know, without. And I with, will tell you each something <laughs> terrible about ourselves. Go. I'm just kidding. His mic doesn't oh, even work. That was I was like, wow. <laughs> I'll tell you about his sins. No, I'm kidding. Ah. All right. Well, you already said where we can find you. And I encourage our listeners to go and check out the Center for Biblical Unity and listen to your podcast and just fangirl like I have or fanboy. Um, and as for us, Theology on Air and Theology on Tap, you can find out everything you need to know, one-stop shopping at HoustonTOT.com. Um, and uh, you can find out about live events that were happening uh, here in Houston. We're going back to in-person, exciting stuff, drink some beer, talk about stuff like this. Um, and we encourage you guys to check those out as well. And until we see you again and talk about more interesting things, we encourage you as always to question freely think deeply and disagree as needed.